Open up your Bible, if you would, your copy of God's Word to 1 John 4. We're going to begin actually in verse 12 and read through 21 here in a second. <clears throat> Hope everyone has a I'm praying that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And um, this is, I say this every year, this is my, we enter into Thanksgiving and then Christmas. It's my favorite time of the year. But Thanksgiving in particular personally holds a place in my heart because it was, um, it was 18 years ago on Thanksgiving the, on Thanksgiving Day, that, that night, I was sitting in bed and I had heartburn. But it wasn't from eating too much turkey. It was that, it was that I had a burning um, in my heart that I knew that I needed to respond to. And that was the night 18 years ago on Thanksgiving that I surrendered to God's call to go into uh, ministry, to preach. And I was scared to death as I sat there that night because... My wife had told me, we were just newlyweds, she had told me a couple of years prior to us getting married, or, or just a year or so prior to us getting married, that she wouldn't marry a preacher. And so I sat there nervous and worried and this burning in my heart, and I knew I either had to surrender to God or, or surrender to my wife. And um, I woke her up on Thanksgiving night and said, Heather, I, I feel God calling me into the ministry, I need to preach. And she said, I know that. And she rolled back over and went to sleep. <laughs> So that was, every time Thanksgiving rolls around, I remember, remember that. Um, before we get into 1 John, uh, the, the passage we're looking at today, I have, a, I have a coloring book here in my hand. And I've, some of y'all have seen me use this before. I have this, this coloring book, and, and I need some help from some kids on, on either side of the room. I'm going to, to fan through this coloring book, and I want you to tell me what is on the pages, okay? So I'm going to go to these, some, there's some kids right here. All right, what, what's on these pages? Nothing. What? Nothing. It's blank, what, what do you guys say? What's on these pages? Nothing. nothing. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you confident that there's nothing on these pages? Yeah. Absolutely confident. I'm going to go to this group over here. I want you guys to, there's only a few kids over here, a lot of older kids, but college kids that are coming back from town. All right, help us out here. Okay, what, what is on these pages here? Pictures, okay, are they, are they colored pictures? No, just, just like what would be in a coloring book, colored, just black and white pictures, right? There, are you sure about that? Are you, are you confident that there's, there's pictures in there? They're pretty confident there's pictures. You guys are pretty confident that, it, that it's blank, right? Hmm. Now, are, are, you, are you positive, girls right here, are you all positive it's blank? Yes, Vera says. Come on. All right, Vera, look at it one more time. Ready? Are you sure it's blank? Oh. Well, your confidence just flew away. And are you guys sure there's pictures in this thing? Because I think if I fan it open here, are you sure there's pictures on it? Now, you're, you're pointing at me because you know I did something, right? Now, this doesn't make sense. There's, there's no pictures. Wait a second here. Is it blank? Or does it have pictures in it that are just... Black and white drawings, or maybe it's actually pictures that are already colored. Maybe that's what it is. So are you guys sure of what you saw? Are you confident, really, that, this, that what, what you said was true about this, this book here is true? I, don't, I think I rocked your confidence a little bit, because this is, a, this is a magic coloring book, okay? Now, there's no such thing as real magic, okay? This is this coloring book. Uh, and, and I've used this before, so I'm going to finally reveal the secret of the magic coloring book. It's simply 
in how I hold the coloring book, whether or not you see what you see, or how I fan through the coloring book. Before I get to that, let me, let me get to the point that I'm trying to make. And that is that when a magician who is doing a trick like this, like I said, it's just all tricks, it's optical illusions or it's a sleight of hand, what he's trying to get you to do, what any magician is trying to get you to do, is put your confidence in the wrong place. To put your assurance in the wrong place. To make you think you know what you know, but you really don't know it. So that he can then trick you. So that he can then confuse you. So that he can make you then go, oh, wow, how did that happen? Now, the magic of the coloring book is simply here where I put my hand. If I fan it from down here, it's blank. If I fan it from up here, it's got black and white pictures in it. And if I fan it from the middle, it's got colors in it, okay? Now, if you want to figure that out later, you guys can come and look at it. But it, it, the fact of the matter is, I, I am messing up your confidence by doing that trick. And that's what a magician does. Well, what John is facing in the churches of Asia is that there's been some false teachers who have come in and with sleight of hand, using a little bit of the truth, but mixing in some Gnostic worldview teachings, have caused the people in the churches of Asia Minor to no longer have confidence. They've, they've lost their confidence. Dude, can we really believe what we've been told? Can we, can we really believe these things? Because there's been people in the churches of Asia Minor, 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 who had proclaimed to be Christians, who had said they were, they were part of the body of Christ, only to then abandon the church, to abandon their love for the brothers, and to follow some teachers, to follow some teaching that said something new, something something. Uh, secret knowledge that had been now revealed about, about Christ. And we're teaching something, a worldview that, that, was, that was denying basic truths, specifically the incarnation of Christ. So there were basically these false teachers were coming in and upsetting the church. And what John wants to do is come back in and say, wait a second here. Let me give you some assurance. Don't fall for their tricks. Don't fall for their spiritual sleight of hand. Let me help you find solid ground, solid assurance. And so this book is all about assurance. Now the passage we are focusing on today, the section we're focusing on, actually begins in verse 13 and will end in verse 19. But I'm going to read, go back to verse 12 here in a second, read that as we read the, the passage because it kind of sets up Verses 13 through 19. And then I'm going to read a little bit farther because it sets up next week's message. Okay, so I'm going to overlap a little bit, but I'm just going to focus on verses 13 uh, through 19. So go ahead and stand if you would as we get ready to read this passage of Scripture. 1 John chapter 4. We'll begin with verse 12. The word of the Lord says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because 
as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Heavenly Father, I pray that it would be a burning in our heart that your word be proclaimed, that your word be taken in, that your word be received by, by ourselves and by others. We want the testimony of Jesus to be accepted. And so this Thanksgiving, Father, I pray that we would be thankful all week long leading up to that day that we sit and we eat physical food, that we'd be thankful for spiritual food. As we gather with physical family, let us be thankful for our spiritual family, the family of God. Let us be more thankful for those things even than for the physical shadows that you've given us. So God, I pray now that you would open up my mouth to speak. I pray that my desire would be ultimately for Christ to be magnified, for you, Father, to be glorified in this message. And I pray, Father, that you'd open up all of our ears, mine included, to hear what the Word says. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to enable us to hear the Word and then to apply it into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I already mentioned, this letter from John to the churches of Asia Minor is all about assurance. That's the thesis for the book in 1 John 5, 13. We've come back to this verse many times. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John has been trying to help his readers and us know that we have eternal life. Thus, we have entitled the series, How Can We Know? So besides what we see in today's text, and besides that thesis passage in 1 John 5, 13, we have other texts, 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Verse 29 of chapter 2. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14 of chapter 3. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse uh, 19 of chapter 3. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By the way, that's the same language used in today's text. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Verse 2 of chapter 4. By this you know the spirit of God. Verse 6 of chapter 4. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Chapter 2. Chapter 5 verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. Then 
verse 18 of chapter 5, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, and so on and so on. This is, so you can see that it's all about knowing, all about assurance. And that's, again, why we've entitled the series, How Can We Know? Confident assurance is the goal. And so John has given us tests in this book to help us have assurance. And, and those tests kind of boil down, if you've been paying attention and, and seeing some of the different things he talks about, it kind of boils down into three categories. There's, there's the obedience test or the moral test. Do we practice righteousness? There's, there's been the, the belief test or the doctrinal test. Do we, do we actually believe the apostolic message? And then there's been the love test or what some call the social test. Do we love the brothers? And that's what John is on again today is the, the love test. Do we love as we are called to love? Now we saw last week in chapter 4 verses 7 through 10 um, an exhortation to love one another because the source of true love is God the Father himself. He is the source of true love. Therefore, if we are his children, we should love one another. And then verse 11, we, re- we saw that we are expected to love one another because of the display of true love. The, the example that's been set for us that Jesus Christ came and was the display of true love. And thus we have, because of our union with Christ, been enabled to love and we are expected to love. Verse 12. We also saw that we are enabled to love one another because of the indwelling of the true, uh, of true love, which is the Holy Spirit. So the, one of the primary means of assurance for the Christian is love. Do, do we love the brothers? Do we love everyone? But specifically, do we love those in the body of Christ? And so we look at verse 12 again. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. And that verse sets up where we're going this week. Okay? Now, when we think about assurance, Christian assurance, I I can't help but think as I've been looking at the news over the past two weeks, I'm sure you guys have as well, the stark contrast that that a Christian has from, from what you're seeing on TV and on the news regarding some of these Islamic terrorists. And one political pundit or someone that I listened to over the past couple of weeks made a, made a comment. He said, I don't think our will to fight the terrorist is as strong as their will to fight us. And he made that comment. And then he followed it up by saying, that's because they're not afraid to die. They're not afraid to, to walk into a room and blow themselves up. Therefore, their will is stronger than, than our will. And what's The problem with a lot of Western leaders and secular media is they don't understand. They don't understand why why is it that that an Islamic terrorist will walk into a room and and kill himself along with as many people as he possibly can. And that's because the only assurance, the absolute only assurance that a person who follows Islam can have that they're going to paradise is if they die a martyr. They die a martyr in jihad. It's the only means by which they can have confident assurance that they're going to heaven. There's no other assurance outside of that. Matter of fact, no matter how strictly they follow Islamic Sharia law, they still have no assurance. It's all a works-based religion. And they can follow it to the T, but you will even tell the most strict adherent to Sharia law. And you can ask him, are you going to heaven? Are you going to be with, with Allah in paradise? And he will say, I, don't, I do not know. I, I do not know. I have no idea. The only way an Islamic person can be sure of that is if he dies a martyr in jihad. How contrasting that is to the Christian worldview. What we have John saying is that, yes, Christians, the way you know is if you lay down your life, but not in jihad, but in love for the brothers. 
You sacrifice yourself and your stuff for the sake of the brothers. That's love flowing out of you. And we have a message of hope, of love, that we need to communicate to the world in the midst of this tragedy that seems to be engulfing almost all portions of the planet at this time. So we start this week's message by again looking at love, which we've seen many times in this epistle. That verse 12 really is the outline for this week's message. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love God, if we love one another, I should say, it says this. Number one, God abides in us. And number two, his love is perfected in us. So those two things, uh, they should be true if we genuinely have love for one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And those two clauses, they drive what comes next. Like I said, they're the outline for what comes next. Verses 13 through 16 uh, deals with this, this theme of God abiding in us and us abiding in him, this mutual abiding. So verses 13 through 16 is, is expounding upon what John says that when he said God abides in us. And then verses 17 through 19 expounds upon what John said when he said his love is perfected in us. And so we're going to look at those two things today, the, the, the abiding in God and the love of God being perfected in us. So first of all, John wants us to have confident assurance, number one, that we have an unbreakable fellowship with God, which has been given to us. We have an unbreakable fellowship. And by fellowship, I'm talking about this mutual abiding that it speaks of here in these verses. Fellowship with God, which has been given to us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. And that couplet there, abide in him and he in us, that's repeated three times in this passage. Although one time it's reversed, he abides in us and we in him. So our very existence, the word abide simply means to live in, to live in. We live in God, God lives in us. So our very existence, our very life is wrapped up in God. And it's an amazing thing to think about us abiding in, our life being wrapped up in the life of God. It's absolutely amazing. Us abiding in him, he abiding in us. Now when we become a Christian, we are brought into a deep, reciprocal intimacy with God. A deep spiritual intimacy. A mutual spiritual intimacy. These, this passage today echoes the, the words that were read by Carrie earlier in the service. John 15 verse 4. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. There's that reciprocal nature of the abiding. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now we need to know something about Jesus' words here. This spiritual intimacy with God, this reciprocal abiding with God, it is not optional. It's not something that just mature Christians do. If you're a mature Christian, you abide in God and he in you. But there's a class of Christians out there that can, can go through life not abiding. We need to see that Jesus doesn't give us a third category. Jesus says in, later on in that same passage, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words in, abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, 
My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There are only two ways to live. You're either a disciple of Christ, meaning you are abiding in the branch, or you are not a disciple of Christ. You are a branch, according to Jesus, that's thrown into the fire. There's no type of true Christianity that is devoid of abiding. Either a person abides in God and God in him, or a person is separated from God, period. So abiding is not an attempt or an ability to reach some spiritual level of higher maturity. It's basic Christianity. Now the depth of our abiding may and should grow as we mature, but there is no such thing as a person who is saved, who, who prays a prayer to get into heaven, whatever you wanna, however you want to word it. There is no such person who does those things yet has no love, no desire, no fellowship with, and no intimacy with God. That, that category of person doesn't exist. There's no person that's truly saved who has no desire to know God more and grow in God and, and have God's word abiding in him. Now, if you will notice, there are, I've already mentioned three repetitions of this little couplet here, abiding in him and he in us. Verse 13, abide in him and he in us. Verse 15, God abides in him and he in God. And then verse 16, abides in God and God abides in him. Each one of these couplets of reciprocal abiding has something attached to it that gives evidence to the abiding or proves that the abiding is truly happening. So let's look at these three. And as we do, you will see themes emerge that we've already touched on as we've preached through 1 John. The first thing, we'll notice, I'm going to mention all three of them here. The first one goes with verse 13, the second with 15, the, the third with verse 16. And the first thing we notice is if, if we know we abide if we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 13. We know we abide if we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we know we abide if we confess apostolic truth about the Son, verse 15. And then thirdly, we know we abide if the other focused love of God is in us, verse 16. So do you see again the tri-unity of God showing itself off in this book? So let's look at the first one. We know we abide if we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 13. By this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us is a calm confidence that we indeed know God intimately and he knows us. Matter of fact, we cannot even profess faith in Christ, true faith in Christ. We cannot have any genuine love towards God without the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21 says that it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And that similar language to Ephesians 1, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Without the Holy Spirit, we are not in God and he is not in us. 
Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot know God. The Spirit is what establishes and animates our love toward God and our love towards others. The Spirit convicts us. The Spirit sanctifies us. The Spirit keeps us from the works of flesh and instead produces the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control toward one another. But most of all, more than all of this, is that the Spirit points us to and teaches us the truth about Jesus. John 15, 26, But when the Helper, that's the Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So how ultimately do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? Well, it isn't warm feelings and emotions. It isn't special signs and wonders or or tongues. It's this. What are we being led to believe about Jesus? That's the question. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The difference between the spirit of God and the spirit of error is what it leads one to believe about the Son of God. And that's what we see next in verse 14. Verse 14 says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now John is doing here, again, what he's already done twice before in this letter. Namely, he is proclaiming the authority of the apostolic witness of Jesus And the apostolic word about Jesus. The apostolic word about Jesus. What's been passed down from the apostles is key to our fellowship with God. 1 John 1.1. That which was from the beginning which we, and John's talking about we being the apostles, have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life that was, was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Listen, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So let's use this coloring book in kind of a, kind of a different illustration this morning. I think I left it down there. You would have known the truth if you could have come and, and seen and touched and felt that coloring book. So if I'd have handed that to one of you, you'd have figured out what was going on with the coloring book. You could have had it in your hands. You could have seen, oh, I see how those pages work. I see that it's kind of cut up here like this so that he, his thumb only hits these pages. And I see that there's all three different types of pages in this book. Ah, now I see how it works. But you needed to touch it. You needed to look at it. And so I'm telling you how it works because I have seen it. I have touched it. And hopefully you guys believe me. I hope there's no kid in here. But hope There's no kid in here that thinks Pastor Steve has magic, all right? It's just a silly book. But John's saying, these aren't silly truths. And I have seen them. I have touched them. We have, we have witnessed these things physically with our hands. And we have seen them with our eyes. We've heard Jesus. And he's telling the people to believe the apostolic witness about Jesus of Nazareth. John and the apostles didn't have some secret esoteric knowledge that they were passing on. They had truth that had been revealed, that had been made manifest publicly. That had been seen by by hundreds and thousands of people. Truth that was made known in flesh and blood, in time and space. Truth that a physical man named Jesus of Nazareth 
was born physically. And he physically lived. And he physically performed miracles. Physically, audibly, he preached and he taught. He was physically arrested and beaten. He physically died and was physically buried in a real tomb. And then they physically witnessed that this man physically rose from the grave and physically ascended to the Father, thus proving himself to be more than a mere man. He was and is the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the apostolic truth that the Gnostics and the Docetists were denying. This is the apostolic truth that we must believe and confess. So the Spirit testifies to the truth about Jesus, which is the next thing we see here in regards to our confidence, in regards to confidence in our mutual abiding. Verse 15, whoever confesses, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son, God abides in him and he in God. So it's not only that we have the Spirit, we have the Spirit and we know that God abides in us and we in him. But that spirit leads us to do something, namely to, to confess the apostolic truth about Jesus. So that's how we know the spirit resides in us and we abide in God and God abides in us. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God. Meaning whoever confesses what John has just said in verse 14. There is no abiding, there is no fellowship, no relationship with God. If any part of the apostolic message about Jesus is denied or compromised. You cannot truly love Jesus and reject what John and the other apostles have taught us in the Word. You cannot say you love Jesus while rejecting the hard teachings of Jesus that the apostles heard with their ears and recorded for us. You cannot say you love Jesus while rejecting the miracles that the apostles physically saw with their eyes and recorded for us. You cannot say you love Jesus while rejecting the physical resurrection of Christ that the apostles testified to as they touched his body. They saw it and they touched it and they recorded it for us. Today there are hundreds of strands of liberal Christianity that deny all these things and more. So they have thereby proven themselves to not be in God and thus have shown that God is not in them. The Gnostic Docetists rejected the apostolic witness and thus they were themselves branches on the ground, ready to be burned. Jesus came in the flesh, as John says in verse 14. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The only way for the sins of his people. The sins of, from, of people from every tribe and language and people and nation from the whole world. To be atoned for. As if a man, a real 100% man could die in their place to appease the wrath of God. But in order to satisfy the full wrath of God... For the sins of his people, he must be a perfect man, sinless and holy. Therefore, he had to be God, 100% God. This was the apostolic word that must be believed. This, by the way, is the doctrinal test. We talked about the love test, and now we have the doctrinal test that John is applying yet again. And there is no partial belief here that is acceptable. In order to be a Christian, you must fully believe the apostolic message. 1 Thessalonians 5, I mean, chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Okay, so we know, we know, how do you know? Paul is saying, as he writes in this early salutation in, in 1 Thessalonians, we know that God has chosen you. How? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. Full conviction. You, you, you took it all in. 
you received the whole message that the Holy Spirit was enabling us to preach to you. That's how we know. So how do we put this abiding into practice? Well, we have to believe in and consume the Word of God. 1 John 2, verse 23, going back to something where John said similarly earlier. He said, whoever denies the Son, uh, who, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning, that's the apostolic message, abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. If the Word abides in you, you'll abide in the Son and the Father. Jesus says the exact same thing in John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do we bear fruit? If we're abiding in him, and how do we know we're abiding in him? Because this book, we can't put it down. We want to consume it. Here's the question heading into Thanksgiving. Right now, which sounds more appealing to you? This book and consuming it or consuming turkey? And I know you are smiling out there. Because you're looking forward to your turkey. And so am I. But here's the question. Do we have that type of hunger for the Word day in and day out? If we don't, we need to be praying for the Holy Spirit, because if we're Christians, we have the Spirit, for the Holy Spirit to stir that up in us. It doesn't take much to stir me up to get hungry for turkey. That comes naturally to me. But hunger for the Word comes supernaturally through the Spirit. So how do we apply this? We pray and we ask Holy Spirit, stir up a hunger for your Spirit-breathed Word in me. And if I'm not hungry for it, something's wrong. If someone comes into my office for counseling and says to me, they're having some issues and some problems and some difficulties, and, and I begin to ask some questions and ask about their faith, and they say, yeah, you know, I believe in Jesus. I, I became a Christian at whatever age, and here's my story, and They tell me where they go to church and tell me what all they do. And if I ask the question, do you spend time in the Word? Do you believe this book and spend time in this Word? And I get sort of an, ah. Then I know something's off. Something's off. We should be convicted by the Holy Spirit if we're not spending regular time in this Word. The Gnostic Docetist rejected the apostolic witness of God, the apostolic witness of the Son. We saw a few weeks ago that the fruit that flows out of our consuming the apostolic message is this. So what's the fruit? Jesus said, I want my, to abide in you, I want my word to abide in you so that you can produce fruit. So what's the fruit? Well, here's the fruit. It's other-focused, selfless, sacrificial love. If reading God's Word is making you a crusty, mean theologian, just want to get into some sort of theological fight, that's, that's not what it's meant to do. It should be producing great love in you. Great love even when you run into those theological fights, because you will. So you can show humility 
and charity, and you can do exactly what Paul tells Timothy. Correct your opponents with gentleness. Because that takes the spirit. Just like eating turkey comes out of the natural man, getting into fights comes out of the natural man. What comes out of the spirit-led man is someone who has the fruit of love even in the midst of tremendous differences. And that's why there's unity in the church. Lord knows I've had differences with several of you, many of you, most of you in this church. And by God's grace, you haven't fired me. Because we should be able to coexist with love towards one another and celebrate those differences while always coming back and fighting for the truth and asking each other to hold one another accountable to the truth. So the third thing here is we know we abide if we have other-focused love of God. If we have other-focused love of God, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We have come to know and believe. We've come to know and believe love. We know the love. We've experienced it. We believe in what God has done on our behalf. These, these words echo Peter's confession recorded in, in the Gospel of John, John 6, 68. Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I can't help but think, it's almost verbatim. I can't help but think that John's remembering that as he's writing this here. We know and we believe. We have confessed we have experienced the love of God. He has the words of truth. Where else can we go? So we too have come to know and to believe in Christ. And therefore we have come to know and believe the love that he has for us in sending his son. God sent Christ because God is love. Remember, as we noted last week, this statement, God is love, that we have here again today, is not an ontological statement about the absolute nature of God, but is a declaration of one of his primary attributes. So if we know and we believe in what God has done for us, then we are folded into the Trinitarian love within the Godhead, and therefore we know that we are abiding in God, and he is abiding in us. As we live in God, we live in love, which means we will live out love. And in the context of this book, we live out or we practice love by obedience to God's commands. And obedience to God's commands is to believe in Jesus Christ and to show sacrificial service to others, particularly the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. The evidence of our loving God, I mean the evidence of our living in God, is living out love. And it's all connected together. The Spirit pours love into our heart according to Romans 5, 5. So this is the assurance we can have. Is the Spirit of God in you, working, changing your affections, giving you a hunger for the Word, causing you to confess the truth about Jesus, giving you a deep and abiding love for God and for His church? If so, then rest assured that you are in God and He is in you. But there's much more that John wants us to see in today's text, and I'm going to try to wrap it up as quickly as I can. Here's the next thing. John wants us to have confident assurance, number two, that we have an unshakable future with God, which has been secured for us. So we continue, So continuing on the topic of love that he brought up in verse 16, read now verse 17. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So again, way back in verse 12, he talked about two things, abiding and love being perfected. So now here, John is focusing on this love being perfected. We have this unshakable future. It's the confidence that we have for the day of judgment. Now I'll get to that in a, in a second. 
Verse 17, by this is love perfected in us. By what? By abiding in God and God abiding in us. But what does it mean to have love that is perfected with with us or in us, as it says back in verse 12? Now, you may remember last week that when we looked at verse 12, I said that this does not mean that we in this lifetime will somehow learn how to love perfectly or reach sinless perfection. And I said at that time that this verse may be better translated, his love is made complete in us. And I argued at that time that... um, we can understand that God's love is not lacking. God's love is perfect. And God's love toward us is not lacking. It is perfect. Whereas our love, our love for God and our love for others is always imperfect because we're sinners. So long as we're on this earth. But I purposely didn't touch on everything that that phrase is pointing to. Because his love being perfected in us or, or with us means not only that God's love is perfect, but it also means that his love is at work in us bringing something to completion. We're not perfect now. We're not sinless now. But the great thing is, is that God's love is at work in us, making something happen. We get the fuller meaning of this word perfected by looking at how it's used in other passages in the New Testament. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Exact same verb, to accomplish. So, so God is doing, he's accomplishing something in us. John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that, he, that all was now finished, said, and then this is a parenthetical comment by John, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And that word fulfill is the same verb. So something is being accomplished in us. Something is being fulfilled in us. Acts 20, 28, Paul says, I do not account my life of value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. So that word finish, that verb finish is the same thing. So God is accomplishing something in us. God is fulfilling something in us. God is finishing something in us. So when we read by this, love is perfected in us. We need to understand that the meaning is, is, is all of those things and much more. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Same word again. Same root word, in this case used in a noun form. Completion. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So this is the process of sanctification. We don't bring our love to completion. God brings it to completion. Hebrews 13.20 Now may the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you, working in us, I should say, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's the work of God in us that gives us confidence on the day of judgment. By this love is perfected in us, so we may have confidence for the day of judgment. How so? Well, because if we love, then we show that we are abiding in him, the one who is love. And if we are in him, then we are protected from his wrath. Psalm 18:2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock, my God, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now, David surely meant that text to refer to protection from his external enemies, but also we can take that, that passage of God being our refuge to see that he is our refuge from his own wrath. If we are in him, 
Secondly, love is the evidence that we are being conformed to the image of the Son. Look at the last part of verse 17. We may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. This, this phrase should take us back to 1 John 3, 1, a passage demon priest. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John is telling us that we do not have to fear the day of appearing, the day of judgment, because we are becoming like our older brother, Jesus. We are in the process of becoming who we already are, of looking more and more and more like Jesus. Therefore, the love of God is being manifest more and more and more in us. The love of Christ is flowing more and more and more through us, especially to his body, especially to his body, the church. More and more every day. And finally, our love for our brothers is the evidence that we are like Christ. We love them because Christ is in them as he is in us. And so we love Jesus. If we love Jesus, then we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, quite simply. And our love should be increasing and intensifying. And so if these things are true, then we should have no fear. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. Fear of what? Fear of judgment. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been, and here's the phrase again, perfected in love. Love displaces fear. If we've truly been folded into God's love, we've experienced God's love, and have by the Spirit been stirred up with God's love, then we know we are children of light, not children of wrath, and so we fear not. So we can read confidently Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We who are in Christ, as he is in us, do not fear because the evidence of love at work in us and through us that has been spirit-wrought, the love that we are to have for God and for his children is not natural to us. It has been given to us. It originates with God. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. This is the great confidence that we have that there is no condemnation, namely, that the very love we have for God and for others by which we we gain so much assurance. It's from God. It originated from him. He put it in us. He began the good work in us. And therefore he is true to his nature for he is love. And therefore he will work love in us and through the spirit until it is completed in us. And therefore we have no fear. Now, I'm going to save your, your Bibles have verses 20 and 21 as part of the same paragraph. But I'm going to save commenting on those until next week. I just want to conclude with a couple of words to Christians and to unbelievers here this morning. Christian, do you have an abiding relationship with God? Is it evidenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit who puts a hunger in your soul for the apostolic word of God, which leads to a deep affection, a deep affection for others, but especially for your brothers and your sisters in Christ? If so, then you can live fearlessly For his love will be completed in you. Yes, you may struggle. It's hard to love the brothers sometimes. I'm not saying we don't have struggle because it's still being completed. The question, is it there and is it growing? Therefore, if we have the love of God in us, we can live fearlessly knowing that on that day of judgment we can stand before the throne of God above. We will indeed have a strong and perfect plea. 
that gives you something more to be thankful about this Thanksgiving. Thankful not just for food, but for spiritual food, for the Word. Thankful not just for your family, but for your spiritual family. For any that are unbelievers in the room here this morning, I I don't want to be a downer on Thanksgiving. But really, what are you thankful for? You have no confidence. You have no hope. You have no assurance. I invite you to come and believe the apostolic witness about Jesus Christ. Believe that He is the one sent by the Father to lay down His life, not in violent jihad, but in violent sacrifice, shedding his own blood, not to to take away the life of many, but to purchase the life of many. Believe in the one who came to take God's wrath, call upon his name, and be saved, and have something truly to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you did indeed send Jesus and that he is our ultimate example. Father, we we become who we worship. In a very real way, your scripture teaches us that we are being made into the image of Christ. If we worship Christ, we become people who lay down our lives. And if someone worships Muhammad, they take up the sword. We become who we worship. So Jesus, we beg you to show us this Thanksgiving, this week, where we are lacking. Where we still need to be completed. Where we still need to be perfected. And Jesus, we know that in this lifetime we will never reach perfection. But, oh, Jesus, we pray that you would give the Spirit to us in a way that we will grow in our love for one another and in our love for you. Oh, Holy Spirit, give us a yearning for the Word that is so strong that we will be as miserable without it as we would be if we skipped Thanksgiving Day dinner this Thursday. Make us more miserable. Give us heartburn. So God, we pray that you would stir up in us because I believe and I pray and I hope that most of those in this room, most of those here in this room today are in you and you are in them. Father, if there be any in here that do not have the witness of the Spirit, the desire for the Word, and affections for your people, God, I pray that you draw them to yourself. Help them to see that they are in danger. They are like a branch right now, lying on the ground, waiting to be gathered up and burned. So Lord, I pray that you do your convicting work on our hearts in however fashion you see fit for each and every one of us and let us all respond in song and with our tithes, our offerings, and our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.